Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Belinda, and this is my third Sunday um, in the job as one of the ministers here on staff at Darling Street Anglican. And um, as you might expect, I'm starting to do my job, I think. Um, and one of the, one of the um, parts of my job is to lead this 10 a.m. congregation. And um, before I can do that, I need to understand um, understand it, understand how things work around here. And um, so I'd love to get together with anyone who's interested to help me learn and to plan together um, about this congregation. So if you're interested in doing that, just see me afterwards and um, we'll work out a time that suits everyone who wants to come along. Um, I need to confess I've made some mistakes in the last three weeks and um, I'll tell you two of them. One is that, uh, and I'm really sorry about this to the person involved, uh, last Sunday I asked someone what they had been doing the day before and it turned out this person had actually spent the whole day in the same course, the same piecewise course as I had. So that was really embarrassing and I'm earnestly sorry. Um, the other thing I've done, which some, you know, I'm probably already exposed with this one, but I melted the chopping board out in the kitchen. Sorry again. Um, but here's the scary thing. I reckon I've done a whole lot of stuff wrong that I don't even know about. And the reason I know that is because this is a culture where... Um, just as in every community, you have ways of doing things that someone from a different subculture has no way of understanding. And you probably couldn't even explain it to me if you, even if you tried. Um, so, sorry for those things too, whatever they are. And feel free to tell me. Sometimes it's obvious when you make mistakes, um, cultural mistakes, and sometimes it's not. Uh, let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, these, these words I have here, this talk, um, they're, just, they're just words. They're just dry, dead words without you, Lord. And, and so um, I just want to ask that you would bring them to life, that you would use these words to bring truth to us, truth into our hearts, that your spirit would um, provide us with nourishment for our souls today that we would go away with a spring in our step and with um, hearts that are changed, Lord, that heart, hearts that are drawn to you more, that see you more and that honour you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told you just now about some cultural mistakes I have made and some I don't know about. I want to tell you about another one that I made a long time ago that I did know about. It was pretty clear that I'd gone wrong. Um, it was about 25 years ago, uh, just after John and I had been married, and I went along to, I think it could have been the first or second of the big family gatherings. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about, one of those extended family things, it was John's family, and there were the cousins and aunts and uncles and second cousins and and la la la, and um, and it went pretty well. It was quite enjoyable. And um, as you do after the lunch, some of us went into the kitchen and started cleaning up. And I suppose maybe there were some older ladies there and um, some younger men and women. And we were chatting and laughing. It was a lovely time. 
Um, and into this delightful context walked one of John's older male relatives. And I, very helpfully, handed him a tea towel. Well, I may as well have handed him a burning bra. There was a deadly silence. It felt as though all the air had been sucked from the room as everyone waited to see what would happen. Pause. Finally, he spluttered out, I, I, I don't do that, and stomped from the room. Culture clash, big time. In my world, everyone who was old enough male or female, would help wash up. In his world, men didn't wash up. And this assumption of his had never been tested until I handed him that tea towel. Now, I can tell you this because I'm pretty sure that in um, post-postmodern Roselle that you're going to get it and you're going to be on board with me. I hope you are. But I don't think I could tell that story in every context. If I was in, um, say, a Reformed Brethren Church, maybe I'd think twice before telling that story. Um, I might not be able to confidently expect an alignment of thinking with me. Um, Here in Mark's Gospel, one of the four accounts about Jesus found in the Bible, the writer Mark is building up a picture of who Jesus is. And this is drawn from real stories, from real eyewitness accounts. He wants to make a point, and to do that, he chooses three examples of what Jesus said and did as he engaged with his own culture. Um, Mark recounts these true stories that convinced him and others that Jesus is God. And the stories are ones that everyone can understand, everyone can relate to. Everyone gets it. But there's a problem. Because everyone doesn't get it. Uh, What do we in the 21st century know about wineskins? Wine comes in a bottle, doesn't it? Or a cask? We don't try to patch up clothes. We give them to the Red Cross shop down the road. We're like the hypothetical reformed brethren church listening to a story about a liberated woman who expects men to help in the kitchen. It does not compute. It doesn't belong in our world. And that's because Mark wrote this account only a few decades after the events actually happened. He drew the accounts of witness eyewitnesses uh, from eyewitnesses and he was writing from within and for a culture that understood about wineskins and weddings and Sabbaths and sewing and fasting. So for us, although this is not really a cultural clash, we do need some sort of cultural bridge to understand what the point is. And we need to enter that world of first century Palestine, Jewish Palestine. Well, this is a world where the rhythms of life include work that is slow and physical, centred around the home and the village or the town, where food is homegrown and hard-won, where bread and wine are central to the meal and where the meal is central to all of life and it takes time, Um, where to be invited to a meal is 
an expression of relationship. It's an expression of honour. It means far more than just a bite to eat. Um, It's an invitation into something sacred. It's a world where everyone knows that when you've made your wine, you need to put it into a new wineskin pouch because as the new wine ferments, it expands. And as it expands, if it's in a, it needs to be in something that will stretch and a new wineskin pouch will stretch. The old ones will just crack and break. It's a world where every garment is precious, where um, tears are carefully mended and patched with pre-shrunk cloth to preserve the piece of clothing. It's a world where weddings follow a time-honoured form, where um, first the bridegroom's family prepare a feast and and gather the guests, and then the bride arrives with her relatives and guests, and then they wait until finally the guest of honour, the bridegroom, arrives, and then the celebrations can begin. The bridegroom, the central figure, equals at the arrival of the bridegroom equals celebration, feasting, dancing. And this is a world where the Jews cling to a hope that one day the Messiah will come, the one who will liberate them from the oppression of Roman rule and will restore their own land to them with, with all the blessings that have been long promised to their forefathers as recorded in the scriptures. And these people are defined by these promises and this expectation. That's who they are. And so there's no corner of life uninfluenced by their religion. Every good Jew fasts twice a week. Pious Jews believe that that fasting is a necessary condition to to, um, be in place for the return, for the coming of the Messiah. Every good Jew refrains from working on Sundays, on the Sabbath, the one day of the week, I think it was Saturday actually, so I said the wrong thing there, but on the Sabbath, the one day of the week where they didn't work. And they didn't even walk more than a short distance from home because that was considered work. They didn't pick grain from the fields because that was considered harvesting, work. And in this world, The young Jewish men who aim to go far in their faith seek out the most renowned rabbis and beg for an opportunity to learn from them, to be their disciples, in the hope that maybe one day they too will learn to be as great teachers as these rabbis. They're the ones, I suppose, who would make their parents proud. And then there are others who have lost their way, the sinners, Um, Jewish parents might maybe tell their teenagers to stay away from these sort of people because you're known by the company you keep. You may be corrupted, you may be tainted, you may be um, perhaps seen to condone their illicit behaviour. And in this world, everyone knows the worst type of sinner is the Jewish man who's gone to the other side, who's working for the Romans as a tax collector, no better than a murderer. So bad, in fact, that the law denies these people any of the normal civil or political rights. These are the Jews gone wrong, who perhaps by their own life choices 
have excluded themselves from belonging to the mainstream. This is a world where things move slowly, where it's been like that for as long as anyone can remember, where nothing changes much, where everyone knows everyone, and there's a script for how things work. Um, in the modern world, at least in a business setting, um, I think it was the consultancy company McKinsey who came up with a definition for culture. And their definition was the way we do things around here. For the Jews, this was the way they did things around there. It was the way we do things around here. It's how it was. It's all they knew. But of course, Mark didn't write this part of the gospel to give us a lovely little glimpse into culture. He's already stated his purpose. We looked at this last week back in chapter 1. The very first sentence of this account says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark's purpose is to carefully document the facts of what happened to show that this man Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah come to rescue, and even more than that, that this man in their culture is God himself. And as we looked at last week, Mark's recorded some pretty extraordinary th things, good evidence that Jesus was more than an ordinary person. Jesus confronted evil spirits, he cured incurable diseases, he was baptised by someone who seemed to be a prophet, even though there'd been no prophets for hundreds of years, and people who witnessed that said they heard a voice coming from heaven saying, this is my son. And these things were witnessed by crowds, crowds of people everywhere Jesus went. They're intrigued by Jesus. Um... I visited China uh, in January 1991 and um, it was just after the Tiananmen Square massacre, not long after, and China was not at all the modern place that it is today. And um, one of the towns I visited was, was quite small, quite rural, very remote. Um, I think they had a ferry that came to that town twice a week and that was the only way of getting in and out of the town. Well, has this ever happened to you? I was with a, t a team of other white Australians and as we walked around, crowds follow us, followed us. Maybe the whole town was following us, I don't know. As we walked past the local school, all the kids were at the fence looking at us, crowding to the fence to see what we were doing. And they'd crowd right up close to listen to our conversations. Um, one time I was trying to communicate with a taxi driver and they were, people were crowding round and they were commenting on what we were doing and what we were saying and, and I couldn't understand it. But, but my hunch is they were saying things like, what did she say? Where is she going? What, 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 did anyone else catch that? Oh, why do you think she's going there? You know, uh, discussing us, so interested in us. Now, it's not because... I or anyone else were such fascinating people. They'd just never seen anything like us before or hardly ever. Um, and, they, <laughs> and they all, can you hear me now? Check one, two. They all um, wanted to get involved in the conversations too. too. Now for me, this is a glimpse of 
perhaps what it might have been like for Jesus. The crowds were fascinated by him because he was different. They'd never before seen a teacher who taught in a way that was powerful and had authority and was far superior to any of their other teachers. One of the elite um, and who yet, when strolling by the toll booth, when Levi, the Jew gone wrong, was collecting his taxes, would stop to speak to Levi. And not only that, tell him to follow him, and not only that, to, to invite himself to Levi's house for dinner, to actually share a meal, to share the sacred with him. This is entirely unexpected. We're not meant to expect it. We're meant to be surprised. Well, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the crowd standing around, maybe some old Jewish lady saying to her friend with their shopping, what did he say? Did that, did that teacher actually talk to Jesus? I hope Jesus told him to scram. Oh, I don't know. Did Jesus give him what for? And then what about Levi, the outcast? Do you think he saw that coming? He was an outcast. It could be that he had no one to blame for that but himself. And the text doesn't give us any clues as to how he felt about being invited um, to dine, to be in with Jesus. But can't we guess? They had dinner together at Levi's house with all the other sinners um, because a lot of those outcasts were drawn to Jesus. Imagine that dinner. There'd be food and wine and jokes and laughter and telling stories, sharing stories, relationship, belonging, community that which is sacred. Levi was invited by Jesus into that. And not just for one great evening, but for always. And of course, it seems that this experience changed him rather significantly. Um, he did follow Jesus and um, he wrote his own account about Jesus' life, which we now know as the Gospel of Matthew. He was invited in by God himself and it changed everything for him. Now, among the crowds wondering about Jesus' strange behaviour were a group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. Now, if this sermon was part of a pantomime, what would you do right now when I said Pharisees? Yeah, you'd boo, hiss. Um, we tend to think of these guys as the baddies, the hypocrites, the, the self-righteous ones. And there is good reason for that, as we'll see as we move on in Mark's gospel. But here's a question. Are they actually getting it wrong here? Answer? I'm not sure. See, the culture, the way they did things around there was grounded in scripture. It was given by God to Moses, um, the great hero of their history. It told them not to lie, not to cheat, not to steal, and not to align themselves with other people who did. Um, sinners, that was the name for it. But then Jesus dined with sinners. The scriptures explicitly told them to observe the Sabbath, not to work, to have a day off. But Jesus and his followers were casual about that. They walked far from home, they picked grain. 
The scriptures prescribed a yearly fast. And the Pharisees and pious Jews did better than that and and fasted twice a week. But Jesus and his disciples didn't fast at all. So when people like the Pharisees asked, why does Jesus eat with sinners? Why doesn't his crowd fast? Why do they break the rules on the Sabbath? These weren't unfounded questions. These were legitimate questions. The Pharisees correctly recognised that Jesus was being subversive. He knew the culture. He'd grown up in it. This was no mistake. He didn't just not know how things worked around there. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a misunderstanding. No, no, these actions of his were statements about who Jesus was, the Son of God. And there were announcements about what he had come to do. Jesus came to call sinners. Sinners is a pretty loaded word, isn't it? So if you'd like to follow Jesus, if you like his way of doing things around here, but you think you're righteous, you've got a problem. Because Jesus only came for the sinners. That's why he came. And who wants to describe themselves as a sinner? This is a problem for people like the Pharisees who consider themselves as upright, decent, worthy citizens who pride themselves on keeping the rules. And Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to bear, a kingdom marked by the renewal of all things, by restored relationships between people and God, marked by forgiveness and justice and peace and the restoration of community now and forever. A new way that promises inclusion and healing and freedom. And that was a way that was worth celebrating, not a time for fasting. And just like new wine in old wineskins, the old ways of doing things were insufficient to contain how big and how magnificent this new way of being was. So there's a dilemma for the crowds and the Pharisees. Which way? And the answer all depends on who Jesus is because the old way was God's way. It had come from God through Moses and the prophets all in the scriptures. So if Jesus is God, then the new way trumps the old way. And if he's not, it doesn't. So I think the Pharisees did make two mistakes here. They asked the right questions, but they either didn't want to understand the answers or they didn't understand the answers. But second, they tested Jesus, but they didn't test their own culture. They didn't test their rituals, their myths, their stories and their assumptions. They didn't ask, why do we do it like this around here? They didn't ask, why don't we hang out with sinners? Why was that ever a thing? Why do we fast? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? It's a missed opportunity. If they had asked questions of their culture, they would have remembered that God wanted people to enjoy living uncorrupted and and thereby able to enjoy all the blessings of what is good and honourable and pure. 
And he wanted the world to look at that community living in those good whole relationships with God and each other and and for other people to want that too, to be drawn into that and to enjoy those blessings too. If they had asked, why do we fast? They'd have remembered that originally fasting was a way to express sorrow for sin. In their day, it was supposed to hasten the coming of the Messiah ironically, but if the Messiah Jesus had come, the kingdom of God had come, the remedy for for sin was here. If they had asked, what's the purpose of the Sabbath, they would have discovered that the Sabbath was a day for rest and renewal and for, um, to, to regain perspective that all, there's more to life than work to be reminded that there's a God who sustains the world and who wants to relate to human beings. The whole point of the Sabbath was always for people. See, the Pharisees missed the point. Jesus' new way was the fulfillment of all that the old ways were trying to achieve. Jesus was there to deliver everything that they were hoping for. T.S. Eliot said there's no greater sin than to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Um, I'm not sure if that is the greatest sin, but let's take the point. The Pharisees were doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. But let's not fall into the trap of condemning the Pharisees as 2D cartoon characters. They were real people influenced by real parents and real leaders and a real society, just like us. And so, asking questions of Jesus is okay. If we want to have a faith that's authentic and robust, we must ask those questions. Does it make sense? Is it valid? Is Jesus, is Jesus real? Is he God? These are essential questions. But do we have the integrity to ask those questions of our culture as well? Do we have the courage to test the stories that we tell ourselves, our rules, our assumptions, our rituals? Can we face holding up to the light our way of doing things around here? Are we able to examine the myths of our society, of our families, of our churches, of ourselves? The myths that say truth is relative. We're all gods. That if I just have more or work harder or be thinner or healthier or fitter or more careful, then I'll I'll fill the gaps and I'll find what I'm looking for. I'll belong, I'll feel okay, I'll be fixed. The world will be fixed. Things will work out the way I deep down know they should be. And this is not an attack on our culture. It's not an attack on our society. It's evaluation. And it's hard. I wrestle with this um, battle between the culture and my upbringing and 
the culture of Jesus every single time I write a sermon. And I'll tell you why. Because every single time I have somewhere deep in my subconscious the voice of my dad when I came home with 99% in a test, 99% out of 100, that's percent, isn't it, saying to me, what happened to the other 1%? So somewhere in me is a culture that says... Nothing but perfection. Anything but perfection is failure. And it's not true. I need to question that. I need to tell myself, no, that is not the truth. We need to test even what began for all the right reasons. And this is especially relevant for churches. When churches stop asking questions then we lose sight of our purpose, and that is dangerous. Let's not be like that. It's scary to ask those questions. Um, It's risky. It feels risky. Because it almost certainly means that we'll see the holes in what is safe and known. And that's painful. Unless you have a better vision for life, better vision for life on offer. And that's the good news there is. Um, Even now, Jesus is holding out an invitation to take our place in that sacred space at his table. It comes with a tea towel that is a challenge, but it's a table where there's acceptance, where there's forgiveness and laughter and community. And there's promise of even better to come. And at that table, anyone can belong. Those who don't fit have a place. It's safe to give up your culture and start again. It's safe to come to Jesus as a sinner, someone who's carrying shame or fear or guilt, someone who doesn't have it all together without having to clean up your act first. And in fact, that's the only way we can come to this table. The only way we can come to Jesus again and again. And that's the church. The church is sitting at that table. Community of his followers, the sinners, the outcasts, the ones who haven't got it together, the ones who know that they need help and yet get to celebrate. Get to celebrate because he's here. God is with us forever and right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the magnificent truth that you are here, that Jesus is alive and that you hold out to us an invitation to dine with you, to, to, to be seated at that table in your sacred space, knowing ourselves to be loved, accepted, forgiven. And we thank you that This is all because of Jesus. So may we look to you, Lord, and honour you and love you and celebrate all that you've done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.